Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And I'm Shaw. Yeah, we have a guest. uh, Shaw is Sarah's husband and general knower of things. And he's here to ask questions as we go through today's episode. Yeah, we thought it'd be a, a, a fun change of pace. He's my life partner. <laughs> I am happy to be here. I often hear echoes of this podcast through the wall when Sarah's recording, but thought I could <laughs> butt in and ask a few questions. Nice. So um, I, I think I'm going to go first this week, and I'm going to talk about unclaimed baggage. Ooh. And, yeah, it, it's actually, it's it's really... It's cool. I didn't actually realize a lot of this stuff in one fact in particular. There's a huge thrift store in Scottsboro, Alabama that sells unclaimed baggage stuff. That's all they sell. It's a thrift store that is full of stuff from people's unclaimed baggage that they bought from the airlines. So they just sneak into baggage claim and grab it before you look? No! (laughs) They actually, um, they have an exclusive contract with airlines and they buy it in bulk from the airlines and sell it. They actually buy them sight unseen. So they'll buy a truckload of baggage and they bring it to the store. They will sort it. So I guess a third of it goes to the store. They say about a third of it they have to toss because it's, you know, they just, it's not sellable. And then a third of it, they, they actually donated as well. And they have a huge dry cleaning department as well in the store. So they'll dry clean all the garments first, which is nice to know. You don't have someone's dirty drawers from their trip to Paris or whatever. And yeah, they sell it at the store. It's pretty amazing. So if you live closer to an airport than your local Goodwill and you're just too lazy to donate things, you could just buy a ticket for your bag somewhere and forget about it. And eventually, <laughs> eventually you'll end up there. It's an expensive I mean, way to do it, but. I mean, I guess. <laughs> so according to a couple of sites that cited it, an estimated 0.5% of baggage, that's half of a percent of baggage ends up unclaimed. And CBS News had a weird like estimate, and I didn't see this anywhere else, of 300,000 bags actually end up left or lost so if it's so some people abandon it like you just don't pick it up for whatever reason and then if it's actually lost someone has lost it they can't find it it's going around the carousel forever somewhere in the world no one can find it someone makes a claim then the airline will pay the claim up to a certain amount and once the airline pays the claim that means they own your bag and you then 90 days till your baggage, it, it basically they have 90 days to get your bag to you. And then it gets bought by unclaimed baggage. And then it ends up in the unclaimed baggage center, it seems like. And strangers can go through your baggage and <laughs> buy your stuff. Wow. Yeah, it, it's actually really pretty cool. I would love to go there. I guess they put out the estimate from the marketing lady of the video that I was watching last night, they put five to 7,000 items out every day on the floor. So they're constantly going through baggage and putting stuff out and dry cleaning it and stuff. Oh, That's I want to go. I want to go on a field trip. 
I do too. It's actually not that far from Atlanta and Atlanta's not a bad drive. I don't think. And I love Atlanta. So I think it would be fun to go there. It's like a seven and a half hour drive. Yeah. It's a big tourist destination. And one thing, cause Shaw was watching this with me too. Hoggle from Labyrinth is there. The like, actual animatronic puppet. It's, it's, it's amazing. Who, who lost Hoggle? I know, poor Hoggle. <laughs> He's sitting there in a window. Like they kind of have like museum pieces too. Like this Hoggle was found in baggage. I'm like, well, doesn't the puppetry, the art of puppetry museum, want him back where all the other labyrinth things are? <laughs> I wonder if they just don't know that that's where a lot of this stuff can end up. I mean, you know, they might know about that specific puppet but yeah i kind of feel like hoggle is probably just display and they know about him and they're fine with him being there but still yeah 90 days is a long time you said 90 days that they'll yeah. try to find your bag but yeah three you know three months you you just want the claim you just want to get it over with and uh that, who knows six months later it pops up at an airport in dubai and there's hoggle <laughs> there's hoggle <laughs> <laughs> And I guess they have, like, they buy baggage from all over the country. So they have actual shippers that they contract with, and they will buy baggage from everywhere. It's not just, like, baggage coming into Alabama or Atlanta. It's baggage from everywhere. And they, like, ship it truckload to them, which is fascinating to me. And I guess, like, there's all kinds of stuff from the, the videos that I was watching. There's, like, all kinds of cameras. There's electronics galore. Extremely expensive jewelry. I guess a lot of wedding bands get there, too, because people pack their wedding bags in their luggage. <laughs> Perhaps trying to conceal a fact about them as they travel alone. Oh, that wouldn't have even occurred to me. <laughs> I generally like when I fly I just want people to leave me alone so the like like the more the more wedding rings I could wear the better. <laughs> you could wear a hoggle costume. <laughs> people would definitely leave you alone if you were wearing a hoggle costume. Well, I always see people in their pajamas when I fly so maybe I wear some like onesie with unicorns on it or something. I think that's an effective uh <laughs> signal. So leave me alone is look, I'm, I'm going to sleep right now. Pajamas. And then Shaw, you brought up this and you're like, well, what if your plane crashes, but you survive? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're talking about unclaimed luggage. And I was thinking like, you know, people who, who flew somewhere and, and, you know, the bag got separated and it came two days late. And you're like, you know what? I don't really care about a weekend's worth of clothes. I got to fly home anyway. So you just abandoned it. Right. But, but what happens if you're like, if you're on a plane and, and an engine goes out and you're on the approach and your, your hero pilot lands you in the Hudson. Well, they rescue all the passengers, but I don't think they get the bags off the plane. So what happens? Where's that go? So you have rights. Apparently it was the Warsaw Convention and then it was in 1929, it was adopted by like 300 airlines in quite a few countries. And it's this rights of passengers and it mandates, it was in 1929, it was adopted and then updated in 1999 to the Montreal Convention. And it mandates that carriers must issue passenger tickets. They must have luggage checks and it's 
there's absolute liability for the air carrier. So if you're in the air, the air carrier has liability. If you, you know, are in a crash or something. They can't um, just say you didn't pack it right. Sorry. We right. Crashed. It's your fault. Okay. <laughs> right. And it limits, so it has limitations to the carrier liability to 100,000 special drawing rights for death or personal injury, and I'll get to what a special what, drawing yeah, right what is. Yeah, what is a special drawing right? Yeah, I'll get to that. 17 special drawing rights per kilogram of cargo, and a 1,000 special drawing rights for personal baggage. So a special drawing right is, it's a form of currency, and they base it off of a few different calculations. And it's basically, I guess, because airlines are all over the world. So you want to have a way of like calculating how much stuff is worth, even though there's different currencies. So I looked it up, and it's like approximately one pound sterling. And then the IMF website, imf.org, the SDR rates, as of last night, at nine o'clock are a dollar thirty nine US dollars. Okay. So if you die, well, if you die, then your your family gets a hundred thousand special drawing rights times, you know, that would be times a dollar thirty nine. So that that would be how much your family would get if you were personally injured or you die. And then your personal baggage would be a thousand special drawing rights, which would be like what? Fifteen hundred, about fifteen hundred dollars for your personal baggage. If your plane went down in the Hudson, and they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna let the bull sharks that live in the Hudson <laughs> <laughs> keep keep your lingerie." So. <laughs> well, I, I always fly with like chicken in my bag for the sharks. Oh yeah, that's hungry. that's really nice of you. <laughs> well, you said that was so. That was nineteen twenty nine. They've been doing this for ninety years. They've had this. This, yeah, uh, the set of, of regulations, I guess, is like a treaty because it's international. So yeah, and huh. it was updated in 1999. And you brought up and I didn't even know this. I used to help out in my grandma's travel agency when I was a kid because she owned a travel agency. I know used to go and help her print tickets for people. I didn't know it was on the back of the tickets. I never read them. But you I, knew that. I, well, I remember back in the 90s reading a paper ticket back when you had to, you know, they were that special paper kind of like card and it had a million little tiny words on the back and it talked about a, a convention in Montreal. I don't remember. It was probably before 1999 about your rights, but you know, it's just like a, some legalese stuff there. It seemed like a secret code, but uh, interesting. 1929 had been 90 years of international compensation laws. Mm -hmm. That's exciting stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it so, was actually really cool. I had I had never even considered that. Like, of course, they're not going to be fishing your bags out. <laughs> well, so, so I guess I guess where do they go? Uh, they go wherever they go. But you get you get some money, and I guess that's that's standardized. So yeah, it's nice nice to know. Yeah, and the lady at Unclaimed Baggage Center, she she was saying that sometimes people show up like looking for their bags. They're like, I lost my bag and I'm wondering if it's here. It's a little yeah. late. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, you're not going to find it. It sounds like, well, it sounds like. they put 7,000 things out a day. No, you're not going to find your leggings. Yeah, <laughs> your LuLaRoe leggings. <laughs> <laughs> They're, no, somebody bought them already or they donated them or they trashed them if they were like all tore up. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it would be an amazing field trip. It would be a lot of fun. I don't know what else there is to do in Scottsboro, Alabama, but it's not far from Atlanta, so there's that. Yeah, so that's like, where it goes. You can you can buy people's stuff. 
So, so when you can buy a, a ticket on a space flight from SpaceX or whoever else is doing it, do those existing conventions cover you there? What if, you're lo lo what if you lose your luggage? I don't know. So is it technically an airline? I don't know. I would I say, yeah. I don't think that exists yet, but I think it's just really close. So. I'd bet if they're subject to FAA regulations, then they would be. I'm, I mean, I guess they could open up like a, the moon um, unclaimed baggage center. <laughs> well, they'll have to have another convention. So they did, was it Warsaw then Montreal? So have to Warsaw then Montreal. So, so they, like the Mars convention or the yeah. one of the craters on the moon. See or Scottsboro. They should just have it at Scottsboro. <laughs> <laughs> so can you, can you just imagine the scene at the ticket counter like when they're if if like all the delegates to these conventions about luggage if they lose their luggage on the way can you imagine them showing up and litigating all that <laughs> they're gonna be like i get a million dollars for a person they, they have like the fresh the freshest copy of the latest regulations right there in their hand look what we just made and you lost my bag i'm all excited to go through people's baggage at same <laughs> baggage center now i don't want to touch it until somebody else has sorted through it you gotta yeah, they get, i guess they give you gloves if you want to go through it but otherwise you can just buy stuff like it's a thrift store and they've all they've washed it and they've wiped all this the data off the like the you're not going to get someone's photos of their grandma and whatever else <laughs> <laughs> yeah you must see some stuff yeah, I imagine it's similar to my job where I find cameras and I'm like, I see one picture and I'm just like, okay, we're going to erase that now. <laughs> <laughs> so you said it was half a percent. Is that about right? Of bags yeah, in the it's US? Half a percent. Lost. That's pretty efficient. Yeah, it doesn't seem too bad. I remember, Sarah, this was a long time ago. You were traveling somewhere. You were stuck in an airport. It was horrible weather. I think it was Chicago and O'Hare, and it was just snowing. But somehow your bag took off before you did because your, your flight was delayed, but your bag left. And I remember for like two days, the, air, the airline just couldn't find your bag. They had no idea. I mean, it had been tagged. It had been sent. But they just really didn't know or didn't seem to have a system to find your bag. And you had to call every airport it might be at because who knows which way it went. And you eventually yeah. found it. So I, I guess that's kind of how it happens. They, they're, they have a tracking system, but it didn't seem very good at the time. So You want to know where my bag was sitting? It was sitting at the destination airport in the unclaimed baggage section. <laughs> it had been going around in the carousel, and after a while, they take it off and put it in the office. That's where it was sitting. I called down there, and it was sitting there, and they had to ship it to me. Yeah, I remember the airline didn't know that. They just said, well, you could call every airport and that's what you had to do. So maybe, maybe yeah. the systems are better these days. I actually got really good advice from someone that I called at the local airport at the place I fly out of. And he said, yeah, just call every airport it could have gone to and you might be able to find it that way. The airline itself was not incredibly helpful. They were just like, we don't know where it is. And I'm like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> I had to do calling and that's how I found it. Yeah. I wonder if it's just more efficient in terms of staff time to pay you whatever they've valued your bag at and just make the claim go away. Yeah. I mean, I guess it sounds like I had 90 days. I had some pretty, I had some pretty great leggings in that bag. So <laughs> I'm glad, 
I'm glad that I found it. <laughs> and some stranger didn't buy didn't buy my leggings and, and claim baggage center in Alabama. I think I had some really great shampoo in there too. <laughs> I'm glad you got it back. Yeah, I did I am too. It was crazy though. I was I was like living in the airport for like thirty six hours waiting for my flight to leave. And my bag left. Yeah, my bag left before I did. I was like, so how did I get on the plane? How did I not get on the plane? But my bag did. I don't get that. That's crazy. Yeah. It truly doesn't make any kind of sense. I, I don't think so either. Like, how did it get there? I think they, I think they, they try to, you know, fill up. If, they, if a, place, a plane's a little light, they'll put a little extra on just in case there's a little extra on your plane. I, they must just... Be trying to even it out, get it there. They figure, hey, early is okay, better than late. So I'm glad I got it back. And this is a note to everyone else: don't give up. Um, search for your baggage at anywhere it could be, any airport it could be at. And if you're not too attached to it, then you can make a claim. And and then uh, maybe if you take a trip to unclaimed baggage, you'll you'll find your leggings again, but not likely. <laughs> Our topics are totally unrelated today, which is neat because yeah. that's not always the case. I know. It's like we kind of have this weird like psychic ability sometimes. Yeah. I think we've only had one other episode where the, the topics had nothing to do with each other. Uh, but I'm going to cover where rigor mortis goes. Oh, cool. So rigor mortis is one of several processes that a body goes through after death. The other mortises are liver mortis, or livor, as in V-O-R, not V-E-R. And another one that I don't remember the name, but it has to do with the body cooling down. That's another type of mortis. But rigor mortis has to do with once the heart stops, the body begins to stiffen, blood starts to pool, and the body starts to cool down. At the moment of death, all the muscles in the body relax completely because the central nervous system is no longer sending directions. And that's the point of brain death. There are actually a few different definitions of death, and they often depend on where you are in the world. Like a Western definition of death is brain death, but it's not uncommon for the heart to stop beating for an extended period of time being considered a form of death. So it just depends on where you live. But in terms of brain death, uh, muscles all relax. And then within about two to six hours of death, depending on the conditions around the body, like the, the environment of the body at death, Within about two to six hours, the body starts to stiffen because the muscles start to contract. And this typically starts around the eyelids, the neck, and the jaw. If you have been in a stressful situation where you've had a lot of physical activity right before you die, uh, the rigor mortis can actually be instant or near instant wow. at the time of death. I didn't know that. That's, that's weird. Yeah, it can be kind of the the forensics of rigor mortis and timing have been a big deal in terms of crime scene investigation and in terms of 
overall review of causes of death, et cetera, timing of death. So it's probably really important to know what people were doing right before they died, if at all possible. Rigor mortis is sped up by cold temperatures and slowed down by hot temperatures. And there are actually, so there are actually human beings that do not show rigor mortis symptoms. Again, they show up within a day after death, typically. And so the people that have died in the past that did not go through the stages of rigor mortis were considered supernatural. So it kind of ties into our last episode about revenants, that that could be a sign of someone who is not actually yet dead or is undead. Many babies and small kids don't show full-on rigor mortis, and that may be due to their smaller muscle mass. So I've gone into what rigor mortis is, and, you know, it's not an uncommon thing to know that a corpse gets quite stiff after you die. And then after one to four days, the muscles relax. Typically in the same order, they contract it. So it will start with your eyelids, your neck, and your jaw. And so where does that go? Where does that rigor mortis actually end up? What ends up happening is, has to do with the process of what's called putrefaction. Once you die, you stop breathing, which means there's no more oxygen incoming to your system. And only a little oxygen is in your system. So you rapidly use it up, making uh, what's called ATP, which is, we'll call it an energy molecule. It's a, it's a adenosine triphosphate, right? Exactly. Okay, That's, cool. So when you die, you have no more ATP being produced, but you have some in your system. And your body actually uses ATP to relax your muscles from contracting and your body actually uses calcium to contract your muscles after you die your cells become your muscle cells become flooded with calcium ions living people their muscle cells are actively including or excluding calcium depending on whether they're going to be contracting and then they would want more calcium or relaxing, and then they would want to exclude calcium so that the adenosine triphosphate can do its job. Calcium ions in the cells, coupled with the lack of adenosine triphosphate, end up causing rigor mortis. So you're, I, I, I likened it to your muscles being a button-down shirt. Calcium would be buttoning up the shirt, and adenosine triphosphate would be unbuttoning the shirt. And when you don't have anything to unbutton the shirt, then the shirt stays buttoned. But because this is a deceased body, enzymatic breakdown of structural proteins like collagen in the muscles over time, within, say, 24 to 84 hours, that hold the muscles together result in the rigor mortis fading because the muscles no longer have enough structural integrity to contract. It's called resolution of rigor. It's basically the shirt, the shirt never unbuttons in terms of muscles. It's more that uh, the shirt just falls apart <laughs> eventually. <laughs> the buttons fall off. Yeah, the buttons all fall off. Uh, 
So you mentioned that um, uh, when you die, the, the calcium floods in and that that's what kind of buttons you up there. What causes that? Is that just kind of like the natural state of things? Is that like just, just the ions are there and they're not being separate? Or is there, is. Is there like an excess of those ions produced right after you die? It's not specifically like the, there's not an excess because of death, but in the cell, it has to do with the charge of the calcium ions. Right. Keeping them where they're supposed to be and then they're not. Exactly. So right. they okay. are looking to generate chemical homeostasis by equalizing the charge on both sides of the cell wall. And so their calcium ions are seeking to have equal concentration on the outside of the cell and the inside of the cell. And then if, and I'm, there's a very real possibility I'm using some of these words incorrectly because I haven't studied chemistry in like 12 years, but I know that the calcium ions are trying to get into the cell so that there can be a balance between the number of calcium, the charge, the electrical charge in the cell and outside of the cell. So, got it. Got it. Kind of gets back to entropy from the talk exactly. about where does time go? You just, you just want less order. Your fight life is just trying to keep order for a little bit and then you die and the shirt falls apart. Yeah, exactly. The shirt falls apart. Uh, way to go. That was awesome. Harken back to entropy. I love that. Yeah. And frankly, I mean, there's one of the better examples of entropy is decomposition, I think. So things like infection in a body, warm temperatures, and physical damage to muscles can increase the rate of putrefaction. So they can increase the rate of resolution of rigor. And then some, I guess, these are not fun facts. These are just facts, and they're a little morbid. So if this has been a bothersome talk to anyone, then feel free to skip ahead. But resolution of rigor is why we age a lot of our meat that we consume, if you consume meat. It has to do with allowing the muscles to decompose just enough that they're not rotten but they're tender because the collagen has broken down enough that the calcium bonds can no longer hold together the muscles in a contractive state i thought that was interesting because i've never really known why meat was aged but that's why and then also because rigor mortis starts with your eyelids eyelids must be closed soon after death or they'll be very mm. difficult to close uh, now I know. I, I, yeah. I never knew why. And you know, in the westerns, you know, the gunslinger falls and, and they close their eyes. To, yeah, right away. I guess the jaw opens too. Like when you after you die, your jaw opens. And I know this because Caitlin Doherty's book. I was reading it, and she was talking about how death isn't pretty. How uh -huh. we make how we make dead dead bodies look pretty so people can look at them at the funeral. But like she was talking about when she learned how to sew the mouth shut. She's like, there's nothing glamorous or pretty about it. You're actually sewing someone's mouth shut because um, death has made their their mouth open. And I guess it would be the relaxing after rigor of the muscles. Yeah, it would, uh, during the embalming process, it's not uncommon for people who are working in that field. Are they still called undertakers? Mortuary. They're morticians. Or, morticians. Now. There we go. Yeah. I didn't think they were still called undertakers. That's a little Dickensian. <laughs> but they often have to massage the bodies into 
a more socially acceptable pose than the one that they assume when their body contracts completely. Because if you don't get a corpse embalmed before putrefaction it, you know, starts really taking hold, it can be a real problem depending on how long you need to keep a corpse looking acceptable for a family to view it. A lot so of balancing. Said, you said rigor mortis can set in very quickly if you're performing like strenuous activity right before mm -hmm. death. So if, you're, if your final moments were running away from the bulls in Pamplona, you, yeah. you, you, that would make kind of a, a difficult setting in a casket. It would. Uh, it can also, you know, things like being in a fight, dying in a fight. I would bet die, death in war was a real challenge to yeah. deal with in terms of the body stiffening quickly. Very Although, talented work, the more mm -hmm. they do. Yeah. They do. They, they do enough work well enough that you don't know what they do type of thing unless you're told. And that's a sign of a, an artist that knows what they're doing. So yeah, that's where rigor mortis goes. The, the shirt falls apart, as it were. Or the meat gets more tender, whichever sort of That's true. If it's, if it's a cow or something. <laughs> beef in a fridge or uh, something more, more human. Oh. <laughs> Entropy increases. Yes. Always. Always. Unless you're, unless you're putting energy into that system. But, uh... Do you happen to have a reuse project? Yes. So um, I got this idea off Pinterest, and I think it's really fun. I love kimonos. I have one that I got in a state sale. But t-shirt kimonos are actually more comfortable in the summer. So this is a t-shirt kimono that you can make from an oversized shirt or just a shirt that um, you have that you can probably kind of needs to be retired. It's a nose, you can do a no sew version or you can sew it, um, either one to add detail. You can sew some lace on or whatever. But you lay a t-shirt flat onto the floor so that it is face up. So you have the sleeves out almost, you know, it's flat on the floor, it's not folded at all. And then you cut a Y up the, up the very middle. So you're gonna start at the bottom of the t-shirt and you're gonna cut maybe an inch to two inch um, strip Mm -hmm. um, vertically and you're going to go up to the collar and then you're going to cut around the collar so you're going to you know the it has that like ribbed collar at the top usually t-shirts do mm -hmm. so you're going to cut all the way around that collar and then cut um, down to meet the other end and it's going to be about two inches one inch to two inches depending on how long you want it and there you go you have a t-shirt kimono. You can cut the sleeves off if you like. I think it would probably be a good, a good idea to cut the sleeves where they're stitched um, just so you kind of like have that rolled edge because you're going to have a rolled edge where you cut the t-shirt. Right. Yeah, so t-shirt kimono. And then if you have a little bit of sewing skills, you can add some lace or something around that, around that um, hem the bottom hem if you like, or you can paint it or tie-dye it. That would be pretty cool too. And now you have a t-shirt kimono from an old t-shirt. Nice. Yeah. I, I just found that. I was like, I'm going to totally do that with an old t-shirt I have that's kind of junky. Well, and there's so many old t-shirts in this world. Yes, there are. That is a, that is a very long topic for another day, but there are many t-shirts out in the world. 
go if you want like a whole wardrobe full of t-shirts, t-shirt kimonos, I'm sure you can do that because generally junky t-shirts like Goodwill doesn't sell, but you can kind of find a lot of them um, at Goodwill anyway. Like there's Goodwills, any thrift stores will have the the better t-shirts and you can get them for cheap, like out of the, out of the bins, um, you know, like the dollar bins or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reuse. Uh- I imagine like a like a quadruple XL T-shirt might be a great one to do. A, exactly, to do exactly. And, and those those might be more likely to be left over after a company event or a sporting event or something where they might donate those. So yeah, and Scrap Exchange always has T-shirts. Um, the Scrap Exchange is all an awesome place here in Durham. Um, it is a reuse um, business. They have a thrift store and then they also have like an arts reuse center. So um, companies and private citizens will actually donate leftover craft supplies and you can go buy cool crafts of supplies. You can buy um, cool old, you know, like wood cast offs old electronics and then the thrift store has like everything you would think a thrift store would um so they always have t-shirts and whatnots they have great stuff there mm-hmm. your your chances of finding something like a like a silk kimono are actually kind of high so yeah i you... actually have found two kimonos there. <laughs> i have purchased so... a silk kimono as well for scrap <laughs> so so if i have a silk kimono and i want to make a t-shirt I think there's got to be a recipe for that. Sometimes. Yeah, I don't know that recipe, but I'm <laughs> sure you pretty could. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but why why wear a t-shirt when you can wear a kimono? Well, maybe you're going to a, a, a restaurant that's got a strict dress code. So it could be, yeah. Kind of place. No kimonos. Yeah. Only t-shirts. Casual, very casual. So what was liver mortis, L-I-V-O-R? That is the pooling of blood. That's the pooling of blood. Okay. After death. Uh, it's also often called postmortem lividity. Oh, lividity. Okay. All right. That's how, what I know it. I'm like, oh, what is liver mortis? It makes sense now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's kind of a liver color, sort of almost purplish, hmm. like maroon. Yeah. Is it similar? Like I have sprained my ankle before and my, and the blood pulled into my ankle and it was like a purple color. Is it similar to that? Probably similar. It's, okay. it's because the blood is also coagulating. Uh, I hope that the blood did not all coagulate in your ankle. It probably didn't. Or no, probably oh my God. I hope you not. probably wouldn't have a foot anymore. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, I like my feet. So that may alter the color slightly, particularly because the body only has so much oxygen left in it after you stop mm-hmm. breathing. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean.